0: Hey everyone and welcome back, this is Ida Josefina and you're listening to what is now called Reverb by SANE. Today I'll be speaking with Noah Alaire. Noah is a writer from Albuquerque, New Mexico. He is an academically trained cognitive linguist and a law student, having previously worked as an editor, consumer market analyst, and linguistic project manager. Last year, Noah published a series of 12 essays on his Substack, including a piece called The Feeding, which was an analysis of digital unwellness and the conceptual metaphors most frequently used for exposure to online content. In this episode, we'll be talking about Noah's writing, his personal journey in research and the pursuit of knowledge, the metaphors of taste, eating and online consumption, and many other things. I recommend subscribing to Noah's Substack. It's called Virtue Signal, and you can find it at virtuesignal.substack.com. I had a great time with this conversation, really hope you all liked the episode, so let's get to it. Here is Noah Alaire. I'm
1: here with Noah Alaire. Welcome, Noah. I'm super happy to be chatting with you.
2: Thanks. Happy to be here as well.
1: Amazing. So I think we could get started with um, hearing a little bit about your background. Uh, Where do you come from? What do you do? What's going on?
2: Yeah, sure. So... Um, I am 26 years old, Um, I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico and I live here still. Um, My background is in linguistics primarily, I have a master's degree in linguistics from the University of New Mexico and an undergraduate degree. Um, I've worked in a variety of different uh, types of kind of professional and labor, all sorts of different roles. Basically, after I graduated from graduate school at UNM, I got a job working as a linguistic project manager, um, contracted at Google, and I worked there for a year and a half managing um, pronunciations lexicon. Um, And so that was kind of like a pivotal experience for me because it was the first time that I moved out of New Mexico, but I also was in kind of the heart of like the technology industry um,
1: in San Francisco, right?
2: In, yeah, well, I was working in Mountain View and living in San Francisco. Um, and yeah, I kind of got to see uh, what, what the inside of a company like that is like to a certain extent. And also to see kind of like what the culture of um, Silicon Valley and the, and the Bay Area has turned into um, kind of due to technology Um, and yeah, so I worked there for a year and a half, my contract ended. And then, um, at the end of 2019, I was hired briefly at a consumer market research company, um, startup out of Oakland. And I worked there between January and May of 2020. Um, at which point I was laid off because of the pandemic and, um, so then I moved back to Albuquerque, and I began kind of doing like a self-study on um, focused on kind of Deleuzian philosophy, um, as well as studying for the LSAT. So I did a lot of that. And then um, by the end of 2020, I just had all of these kind of ideas worked through, kind of, and I wanted to begin kind of um, publishing some writing. But... I didn't have any background in publishing or like I felt like I probably couldn't get published by a magazine. So, you know, I had seen um, kind of the beginning of Substack kind of blowing up. So I decided to start one and yeah, I started this blog called Virtue Signal Substack or it's kind of like a blog newsletter, um, published the first article about almost exactly a year ago and it was kind of a way for me to work out um, just kind of my feelings about the pandemic and my feelings about being online mostly.
1: Yeah, I, I want to talk um, a little bit later more about what you write on the Substack, but uh, for how would you describe your personal journey with research, writing, thinking, and the pursuit of knowledge in general? Like, where, where does that come from?
2: Um, my personal journey with the pursuit of knowledge... I guess um, it kind of, for me, it begins with um, not having gone to a traditional school when I was a kid. I was homeschooled until I was about in sixth grade, and then I went to a few different other schools that were kind of alternative, um, kind of self directed learning style schools for a while. Um, And so I think that kind of taught me to just believe in myself almost in a way or believe in my ability to learn, um, without a a qualified teacher to kind of show me the way all the time, um, which I think is really powerful. Um, yeah, I guess, I don't know. Could you, could you be a little bit more specific with the question, I guess?
1: Yeah. I'm just, I'm wondering like, if you have like, what, what, what kind of things make you take when it comes to information or ideas, like, do you have these type of, like, when you were younger or in whatever stage of your sort of intellectual journey, have you had any kind of moments when things have just really clicked and you've kind of recognized something or realized something and and had this sort of aha moment and you've and that sort of led you to continue to explore different ideas in dire- different directions.
2: Yeah, I mean. I think that like one of my major kind of like themes of learning in my life is about learning about language and not necessarily learning about different languages, but learning about language as like a whole abstract field of study. So, I mean, that's kind of what linguistics is concerned with. Um, I think it's really important because it's basically learning about information. And of course, information is communicated in different ways besides just language. But I would say language is the primary means of communicating information. So I think studying language um, is like a fundamental kind of part of my my pursuit of knowledge, because it allows you to both get into kind of a quantitative aspect of or linguistics, at least, is both quantitative and qualitative, which I think is really important. Um, unlike some of the other kind of, well, I think like this this gap between the social sciences and the humanities um, in academia, at least, is really interesting. Where the social sciences, for me, offer kind of a more holistic approach to studying, um, to or can they offer a better lens on like the whole world and cognitive science, especially, I guess. Um, than something specifically more like anthropology or sociology mm-hmm. or even philosophy. So I think that coming at um, coming to philosophy or art or something with a background in a quantitative field or a, or a scientific field can be really useful. Um, I mean, I got into linguistics initially because I, for a while, I was interested in singing uh, quite a bit. I used to be in a choir and. So I learned some about phonetics and phonology um, through singing. And then when I got to college, I became interested in, you know, I, I saw a linguistics class and I was like, okay, this is something I'm somewhat familiar with. So that was kind of an interesting aha moment where, you know, art takes you to science and then science takes you into, you know, your career and then. Your career might kind of end <laughs> in a certain way, and then take you <laughs> back back to philosophy or art. So yeah, um, yeah. I would you say also it,
1: you did that. You went from you went from sort of like academia, philosophy, or even like a more artistic pursuit into tech, and then you left tech again. Well, to go to law, right? So that's yeah, yeah. Um, I've had a kind of roles.
2: yeah, I've had a kind of meandering um, path so far, but yeah, I would. I guess I, I don't think I mentioned this before, but yeah, I'm currently studying law again here at the University of New Mexico. Um, I kind of decided to do that because I was kind of, I just became kind of disenchanted with the technology industry and, and also academia in a certain way. Um, I don't know, I wasn't, when I finished graduate school and got my master's, I wasn't particularly interested in, I realized basically that I hadn't done enough to a really strong PhD applicant because um, I wasn't like publishing papers and going going to conferences and so then I was like okay I'm gonna try to work in the industry I did that for a while and it was in some ways really great but um I realized that the kind of jobs I was working in the technology industry just didn't really like conform with my values yeah. um and so when I came back here I kind of had like a year and a half to reset and then um My sister is an attorney, and she's been really inspiring for me in terms of law, but also like uh, the philosophy of law is really interesting to me, too. I think that in a certain way, both technology and the law, or you can maybe even think of the law as a technology in a certain way, Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: it it, um, aspires to basically do social engineering, which is kind of like something I think that a lot of people wouldn't admit, but you know, the laws exist basically to kind of weed out or um, to narrow the field of acceptable behavior Yeah, is one way to think about it. And I think technology also does the same kind of thing. Um, yeah. I see both as kind of having a standardizing influence. And one of them has kind of like this whole corporate world power, you know, mon- money power behind it. And the other one has this whole historical narrative of the nation state and all that behind yeah. it. So...
1: We could um, have the whole like side conversation about this because I think it's so interesting to think about law for from like the perspective that it's not just a rule that you choose or choose not to follow, but it's something that is uh, that is not a choice that it's forced. Like for example, like if you think about building cars, um, whether the cars have like an engineered speed limit to them, so you can't choose or choose not to break the speed limit because the car will know what the speed limit is and just makes that choice for you. But yeah. Maybe a conversation for another day. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to talk about your writing. Sure. What kind of things do you write about?
2: Yeah. So kind of like I mentioned before, um, my kind of my motivation for beginning the writing project was kind of just to, well, I'd been posting a lot on social media, especially on Instagram. And for a while, I was making memes, and during 2020 especially, I had, like, quite a few memes that did really well online. Um, And they were, like, suggesting certain, you know, they would would basically, like, point at or suggest, like, certain concepts or ways of looking at the world. But when you look at a meme, like, you know, you're getting, like, quite a, like, it's not a very in-depth analysis of like some of the concepts even though it might evoke those concepts. So part of it was for me to kind of like get into like long posting as I would call it which is like writing out like a whole analysis rather than just creating a meme that create you know might transfer an idea to somebody but then that's it. So that was part of it. Um, I would say kind of some of the themes of what I write about on Uh, virtue signal substack would be like, you know, the interaction of humans with social media is a huge theme. Um, The first article I wrote was about the effect of spatial limit or spatial restrictions or basically the the effect of lockdown on people's perceptions of time. Um, I think that I guess one thing that motivated me to begin writing was that I would see a lot of, well, also in 20, 2020 and 2021, I think there was like this big culture of online reading. And I actually think that like, this is kind of falling away this year, or even in the second half of 2021. But with the lockdown and the pandemic, I think a lot of people were just like working from home, of course, and and just like looking for content or longer form content to help them understand their own emotional experience of the pandemic. Um, And Mm -hmm. so that was part of like my um, motivation for beginning to write was not only just processing my own emotional experience, but also offering kind of more in what I felt like more in-depth analysis of kind of current events in a way that um, would help people understand what they were hearing from kind of more mainstream news sources. So, yeah, I wrote um, about the different kind of the COVID time, time sense. This was kind of like a topic at the end of 2020 that was pretty big. was like, why does everybody feel like time is going differently now? Um, and then the second one I wrote was about kind of like a response to the January 6th uh, Stop the Steal protest um, from kind of a different mm. angle than I had seen um, before. And then, yeah, um, I wrote a few kind of touching on global warming and climate change and the way that that impacts people um, these days emotionally. Um, yeah, and then the one that I think we're going to talk about the most was kind of about, specifically about um, consumption online and metaphors, metaphors for consumption online. And then I wrote another one kind of as a sequel to that about... Um, Discourses of taste and how how people's taste, uh, you know, how people kind of like imagine that they have a sense of taste, not uh, for content that is not just like for food, but kind of the slippages <laughs> between those kind of yeah. things too. So yeah.
1: Do you wanna do you wanna give like um, a summary of um, the piece? that was called the Feeding, right? Yeah,
2: that's right. Yeah, so. Um It touches on a few things I've already mentioned a bit, but I kind of start the piece by talking about how uh in twenty eighteen and this was right when I was kind of working in the tech industry um both Apple and Google and you know some other companies introduced these um they basically let users start seeing uh the amount of time that they were spending on their phones or their, their apps. So we're all probably familiar with like the digital wellness tools. So like, if you have an iPhone, you can see exactly how much, you know, how many times you picked it up in a certain day and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of start the the essay by talking about how um, I see this as kind of like a dis or it's, it's kind of a disingenuous attempt to, well, I guess one thing I want to say about it is that I don't. I'm not somebody who believes that everyone or the whole entirety of like a company like Apple or whatever, it, you know, that it's like an evil place or something like that. It's yeah. just that there's there's actually like many factions within all these companies that are vying for, you know, like funding and attention and all this. So I don't think that like the teams that develop these digital wellness products are def, are are. You know evil or anything, <laughs> but I think that like I basically say how the digital wellness tools have base work better for the companies than they do for the users, and we can't really imagine that that um, these kind of tools are gonna like save us from this kind of addictive potential that um, those kind of applications or social media create so um, yeah, I basically wanted to talk about um how using, a, uh, using kind of like an objectivist quantification effort to reflect people's consumption habits online uh, doesn't really give the full picture. Um, and so instead, I was kind of suggesting that we need to look at the metaphors that we use to describe what we do online Um, So I write, for example, like, I'm interested in showing how unconscious subjective associations affect the very basis of empirical and scientific knowledge. Um, And so specifically, I honed in on what I call metabolic metaphors for digital health. And the main Mm -hmm. one is exposure to digital content is consumption. So the argument basically is that our embodied experiences of consumption, which means like that, you know, the things that we actually put into our bodies, like physically, which means eating and substance use, those, those experiences metaphorically structure our interactions with digital content. And you can see um, that pattern or that metaphor in the words, especially the verbs that we use for um, being online. So we say things like browse, I'm browsing for content or, you know, and Obviously, browse is a word that also can be used to refer to eating. Um, even, like, the feed itself, which is kind of like the the title of the article is a play on this, like the feed also ref- references some kind of eating. And then there's this other kind of pattern, which is like the binging pattern, which could relate to either eating or substance use. So basically the summary is that I couldn't. Tried to identify two different patterns of consumption online um, using these metaphors as kind of a structuring device. The first one I called anorexic browsing, which is kind of like the semi-detached, like less attention put into it, kind of like scrolling pattern. And the point here is that when people get online in anorexic browsing, it's not really that we're looking for engaging content because we may know that we're not going to find that, but we' we're looking or we want to want to find engaging content um so there's what I write is like in anorexic browsing the desire the desire for engaging content is involuted or kind of folded into a desire for the desire for engaging content um and then the second part of the essay kind of talks about how desire, I mean, one of the big themes, I guess, of my blog, too, is like, the way that desire can be channeled by different apparatuses in society. And it's kind of, it it hinges around this kind of, this idea of instinct. So kind of the typical, where what the audience assumes is that he has some kind of superhuman control over his instinct to eat. But what's actually happening from his point of view is that he's just unaffected by food. So um, it goes to this thing where the instincts in general kind of consciousness are thought to be primary because they're kind of difficult to suppress. But that theory of instinct or appetite uh, kind of neglects the relations that are established with other things. So in his kind of, in, in his world, food just doesn't appear appetizing to him. Um, And so that's why, so it's not really that he has to suppress any kind of instinct to eat. It's just that he's never encountered food that is truly appetizing. And so his whole kind of subjectivity becomes self-destructive in this way um, because he's incapable of forming a productive relationship with food Um, but in a, in a different way, he's kind of, he's kind of free of these kind of automatic or instinctual reactions that other people have. Um, so I kind of, one of the quotes, uh, that I thought was really great, um, that I include in the essay. And so I kind of use this as an illustration of what I call the anorexic browsing pattern. Um, and this secondary scholar explains kind of this anorexia, um, analogy as well if I can read it so it says anorexia then is in fact an attempt to liberate the body from an unsupportable burden of automatic relations the desire for food which is an extensive relation between the body and food is involuted into a desire for the desire for food the affect food has is suddenly desired for itself in itself meanwhile food the actual origin of that particular affect is subject to profound disgust so this is somebody, um, this is like a Deleuzian secondary scholar explaining, named Buc- Ian Buchan- Buchanan, explaining um, kind of the Deleuzian concept of the anorexic body. And I thought it was a really, just a really great way of describing my and kind of like technology or the government or whatever. The the argument is basically that we understand our actions on social media specifically metaphorically through eating and since we have this kind of general perception that our actions online are disordered um, and that we understand it through eating we can understand that kind of disordered content consumption through disordered eating so that's where kind of the the anorexic browsing comes in. So in anorexic browsing, the desire for engaging content is involuted into a desire for the desire for engaging content. And I kind of liken this to going to a store without anything in particular in mind to buy. Um, So that's kind of like an illustration of kind of what it's like to scroll on on social media. Um, I mean,
1: it's like I, I'm sure that everyone listening to this knows what it feels like to be doom scrolling in search of some kind of relief or even euphoria. And often yeah, when you close the app, eventually you, you, you kind of realize that you didn't find neither relief nor euphoria from what you just
2: did. Yeah. And I think the way it kind of connects to like your project in some ways is that because we're not really looking to eat anything online or we're not... We, we fail to really internalize any of the content that we see. It's just kind of like it hits kind of like the surface of us in this way or like the very top of our mind. And we don't really internalize any, anything very fully. So I think that goes to kind of, I think the goals of your project, which is to develop some kind of platform that encourages people not just to scroll, but to actually always have engaging content available And, um, you know, present it, I guess, in a certain way that allows those people to actually fully internalize that content. Yeah, we
1: call it like meditative thinking because I think it is exactly that. It requires a certain, like, it it requires, like we were talking before when we were talking about like how we approached. To text like to more sort of difficult text that you really want to internalize like whether it's for you it was like writing things down like word by word of things that you find interesting for me it was like reading aloud but it does require more than just glancing it's 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 a sort of like meditation um, and and like an exercise into opening your mind that i think you have to do if you're going to retain anything and if you're going to internalize something and then be able to connect the dot into something else and therefore actually create for example an idea
2: yeah 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 and I think like the main point, or one of the main points of that essay, too, is that like our actual desire is organized at a higher level than the way we relate with the content. Our actual desire when we scroll is uh we can we can restore it socially through actually connecting, so we're actually more interested in the people who are posting than what they're posting, but it's kind of difficult because of the way the platforms are structured to almost admit that to ourselves yeah. <laughs> and it can feel really difficult to reach out to the people like that we actually find interesting online or or the people because instead of admitting that we find them interesting we just think oh i find your content interesting yeah so there's kind of like this disconnect between these two levels and you know allowing people to understand that what they're actually looking for is social connection I think is, yeah, is kind of the main point for sure,
1: okay I want to talk about one more thing before we end um, which is something that you mentioned on another call we've had um, again going back to Deleuze about how new problems actually create space for new concepts do you want to talk a little bit about yeah. that?
2: yeah sure um, yeah so I mean that's, you kind of nailed it it's, it's this idea that concepts don't just come to people like in these, like it basically, it's like concepts don't just occur. Um, concepts all, are always kind of um, preceded by problems that, that create. So like in order to have a new concept or a new idea, really um, it needs to be in response to a new problem. Um, so this is kind of, Again, it, it bridges, and I think honestly, a lot of like people who are like innovation-brained or mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, like they actually do understand this, um, and it's this idea that like yeah, a new problem opens space for a new concept to emerge, um, and it, you know, what Deleuze says about it basically is that. Um, Art, science and philosophy are all kind of can be resonant with each other um, or develop resonance with each other because they can all respond to problems in different ways. So the way he puts it is that, you know, there's a new there's a new problem, right? Art responds to it by creating a concept or creating a new sensory aggregate So art responds to a problem by creating a new type of sensory aggregate. Science responds to the problem by creating a new function or developing a new relationship between two variables. And then philosophy, it's kind of the, the, the job of philosophy to create new concepts. So when there's a new problem, the reason that there can be kind of similarities or, as I said, resonance before between these three different fields of Of kind of culture is because they're all responding to the same kind of problem so um, I think I said before that like I think COVID in a certain way presents like a new type of problem and that it's like it's important for us to continue even you know especially because of the ongoingness of the pandemic now it's like it's important for us to see that you know new concepts aren't just going to emerge out of anywhere it's that they come from New 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 issues and new yeah. problems.
1: Okay, I think that's a really beautiful ending. So um, we could end here, and I, everyone should go check out Virtue Signal. It's just VirtueSignal.substack.com, right?
2: That's right. Yeah. And,
1: and you're on Instagram as Virtue Signal yeah, as well,
2: as Virtue with the Signal, memes. Yeah.
1: So yeah, <laughs> um, go check it out. Go sign up. Um, thank you so much, Noah. It was a pleasure chatting with you.
2: You too. Thank you.